Well, good morning again. Thankful to be able to join you as we study God's Word. And so if you just uh, go with me, let's open in a word of prayer and uh, entrust uh, what the Lord has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for already the work that you're doing in our own hearts as we worship you, as we reflect on your coming, and as we fellowship with one another. God, we thank you for your word uh, that is the revelation of truth, that is the authority of our lives and our hope that is found in Jesus as revealed in Scripture. And so, God, this morning I pray that you would just open our hearts Uh, God, uh, to uh, things that you have for us this morning, and may you be honored in our study, Uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I trust that you had a good Thanksgiving uh, this past week. Uh, I had a couple of nice days of weather in there. Maybe you got some Christmas lights up this week as well, Uh, but just a good time Uh, to be able to get together, hopefully, with friends and family, and to give thanks, amen, and to be thankful for uh, what God is doing in our lives, the provisions that he's given us, um, and to reflect on his goodness, because ultimately our thanksgiving is not in a turkey meal, right? Thanksgiving is in our Lord, and so I I trust that it was a, a thankful week for you. The, the reality that we know is that uh, it's not uh, always a joyous occasion for everybody. And that as the holiday season swings in, uh, I think one of the things that we're becoming more, uh, and, and rightly so, more acutely aware of is that uh, the holidays bring mixed emotions. For some people, they're very bittersweet. And uh, not only is it something that has maybe got a certain amount of joy, but it's something that also carries with it a certain amount of loss. And that can look a lot of different ways for different people, um, but we want to acknowledge that and recognize that that's real. And maybe that was the case for you this year. I don't know what your particular situation is, um, but loss is, is part of life. And I think about uh, that just even in my own life. I had a a friend of mine, his name was Mike, and uh, Mike passed away. Uh, it'll be two years on Tuesday, right? Right after Thanksgiving. And uh, it's hard. There's not uh, too many days, uh, probably hardly any at all, uh, that go by that I don't think about Mike. Mike was a dear friend of mine. We met in junior high and attended youth group together. Uh, we became, became friends and we had sort of that typical group of friends that would run around and play sports and just do a bunch of different things together. Uh, but then really when we got into college, Mike is a couple years older than I am, uh, but we got into college and um, we really became good friends. And um, uh, we sort of were dating around together. We, we actually dated uh, two sisters and uh, he married his, the, the one he was dating. And, um, <laughs> I got dumped by the other one, but uh, <clears throat> so goes life. But, uh, but Mike and I just spent a lot of time together, but then uh, we got married around the same period of time, about a couple, just maybe a year, year and a half apart of each other, and started our families together and just really became even closer friends, started having kids around the same time, and our girls uh, are the same age as his girls, and uh, we just really connected, and he was... Uh, one of my best friends uh, for most of life. And then uh, uh, he just uh, got cancer uh, in his uh, late 30s and uh, he beat it once and then it came back. And uh, like I said, he just, man, I promise you I practiced this. Um, <clears throat> it just, uh, you know, took his life and... Uh, Mike was just a great guy, and he was a good friend uh, for many, many years. And uh, he had a very genuine and sincere faith in Christ. Um, He was, uh, you know, young, and he was really uh, sort of at the top of his field. He was a senior financial analyst and uh, just doing really well and uh, had a really great family and loved his family. 
really, really well. Mike, um, in, a, in a good and healthy way, he had a really simple approach to life. And he just loved the Lord and served where he could and loved his family. And that was really uh, kind of his focus. And, and now, you know, he's, he's gone. And so my heart, when these things uh, come along and Thanksgiving comes along, my heart goes out for his family. And he left his wife and two girls. And, um, you know, it is, as you probably know, many of you, it's an ongoing grieving process for them. And uh, there's just a lot of loss, especially just because of the timing of it uh, that is there for their family. And it's, it's, it's hard. It, it's hard to be thankful. It's hard to be joyful in those things uh, and when you look around and you see everybody else uh, that's enjoying and uh, the festivities and all of that, and, and yet there is this, uh, there's this gap, there's this grief that exists, uh, especially uh, for them. And so uh, my prayers go out to them as well. And, and that's, just, that's just life, right? There, there is a reality to that that we deal with. Um, I had a good friend and my youth pastor, Todd Burrow. Some of you guys met him. He spoke at my installation service when I started here. And he and his wife were good friends. And his wife, some of you may have heard this, uh, passed away earlier this year. And so, uh, again, maybe you can identify with this. Their, their family now is going through those season of firsts, right? It's so hard. And the first Thanksgiving, and it's going to be the first Christmas first birthdays, first anniversaries, all of those firsts of realizing that the, the person that was such an important loved figure in your life is no longer there. And so this is uh, some of the reality that comes with seasons. Uh, it's bittersweet. And the joys are really, really great. And we give thanks for those things. And the loss and the grief is really, really deep. And it's hard. And we give thanks to the Lord for those things. The late Scottish preacher Alexander White observed that we all tend to hang heavy weights on the thinnest wires. He meant that we hang our happiness on fragile things that easily and quickly can be taken from us. Health, spouses, children, jobs, homes, or maybe possessions. They're all good blessings from the Lord, but they are inadequate as the foundation for lasting joy because they're uncertain and they are certainly temporary. And while any major loss is emotionally painful, it's crucial that we learn how to work through such a loss biblically because we're going to face them. 1 Peter 5, 8, 9 indicates that it is precisely in times of suffering that the devil seeks to destroy our faith. Many believers have been wiped out spiritually because they didn't know how to suffer biblically. And I just, I know that I kind of identify with that in my own life, is that in seasons of loss or grief or tragedy or whatever that may look like for you, that it's difficult and sometimes it can sort of wipe us out. It challenges our faith. And if it isn't for, wasn't for, the prayers and support of family and friends, it, you know, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if I would have gotten through it in my difficult seasons either. And it, part of it is just having this right sort of focus and perspective. Uh, some have mistake, mistaken the notion that because they believe in Jesus, that he will protect them from all major suffering. When tragedy hits, they feel that God has abandoned them. Others are taught to claim healing by faith. And when that didn't work, they're told that they don't have enough faith. And when that didn't work, then they have this other impression that it's unspiritual to grieve or to shed tears. <laughs> I hope not, since I cry all the time up here. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes as believers, we try to say, you know, well, praise the Lord around other Christians when internally we're dying inside and maybe that's you this morning right that it's Thanksgiving and you come in and you're trying to sort of put this front out but internally you're, you're dying inside 
Well, our, our text, I think, speaks to this. Jesus is preparing the disciples for the overwhelming sorrow that they would experience in really just the next few hours as they will watch Jesus be arrested and mocked and scourged and crucified. And their world is about to come crashing down on them. They had put their hopes and staked their futures on the belief that Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel. The previous Sunday, their hopes were high as Jesus rode into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna by the crowd. But now everything that they had hoped for would come to a sudden and shocking end as they would watch their Lord suffer and die. And I believe that in this passage, Jesus is preparing them. He's teaching them just as I believe this passage teaches us and prepares us for suffering by teaching that Jesus is going to turn our sorrows into joy, into lasting joy. In John chapter 16, verse 16, this is where we'll be kind of in the middle of our text. Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And so this caused great confusion among the disciples. And it caused, uh, sometimes it can cause confusion even amongst us believers today. Some argue that the little while is referring to his ascension. And the second little while is referring to his second coming. Others take the second little while to refer to the disciples seeing Jesus when he uh, sent the Holy Spirit to them on the day of Pentecost. But I think when we look at this context, and we'll walk through this together this morning, you'll see that it's kind of clear that the first little while is referring to his death, whereas the second little while is referring to his resurrection. When Jesus was crucified, the disciples wept and lamented. And while Jesus' enemies were rejoicing. But after the disciples saw the risen Lord, their sorrow would be turned into lasting joy, which no one could take from them. And so we just have to sort of look at the reality of this. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to John chapter 16. And we're going to look at this section and discover, I think, some truths about sorrow. And it's interesting in this that Jesus is repetitive in his last teachings and words with the disciples. Again, this is the last week before he goes into his crucifixion. And so he's teaching and telling them the things that are most important. So he's reminding them how much he loves them. He is bringing comfort to them in their lives. And he is encouraging them. And throughout this encouragement, he's focusing in on the suffering that is going to be coming. And, and we looked at the suffering through persecution and opposition. But now he leans back into a topic that he had previously talked about a little bit. And it is this idea of suffering through loss and through grief. It is the recognition, the further conversation goes along with the disciples, that Jesus is going to be leaving them. And so he encourages them. And very, at the very beginning of this, he d encourages them by reminding them that he is not going to leave them permanently. That he, in fact, is going to send the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that renews our sorrow. The Holy Spirit renews our sorrow. Now, the Holy Spirit does a lot of different things, but let's read this together in John chapter 16, starting in verse 4. It says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But here's a key verse. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm telling you what's about to happen and that I'm going to leave you. And I, in seeing, I'm sensing, I know that there is a sorrow that is filling your heart over this news. But here's the solution. Here's the good news. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, this is what he'll do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but I cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I say he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the promise here is the Holy Spirit. As he seeks to provide comfort for the disciples, he reiterates the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because this is part of what we looked at previously. But the Holy Spirit is coming concerning three different things. The convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It is to reveal the sinfulness of the world, to convict our hearts of the sin that exists, the separation in our relationship with Christ. But it's also in regards to righteousness, that it is the righteousness of Christ. And specifically, he says, because I go to the Father. And so it's the Holy Spirit that reveals that Jesus is alive, that he is with Christ in heaven, even even after he has ascended into heaven. And then lastly, concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. That there is going to come a point in time where judgment is going to be landed for each person concerning sin and concerning righteousness. But in this, it gives us comfort because it is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus' Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who lives in us, who dwells in us, and brings about the comfort that we need. There's a lot of different things that could be said about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit adds blessing to our lives. The Holy Spirit gives special grace during times of need. The Holy Spirit empowers our resources that we have in Christ. The Holy Spirit enables the impossible. The Holy Spirit inspires our faith. The Holy Spirit reveals the truth. The Holy Spirit fulfills our purpose. The Holy Spirit overshadows our difficulties. The Holy Spirit enlightens our confusions. The Holy Spirit helps us to persevere through trials. The Holy Spirit is powerful and active. And specifically, he is active in this time of loss and grief that Jesus is talking about with the disciples. And so that moves us to this reality that Jesus addresses. A a very simple fact, right? And that is that we all have sorrows in this life. And so look at verses 16 and 17. We already read 16, but we're going to look at it again here. It says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. Like the disciples are confused by this. Again, Jesus is trying to communicate what's going on and what is about to happen. And yet there continues to be some confusion on the part of the disciples about what is going on. Jesus is trying to convey to them the reality of the sorrow that they're experiencing in their heart that's going to be manifested in their experience before the cross when Jesus is crucified. God decreed death as the penalty of sin. Although Christ has taken away the sting and victory of death, he has not yet taken away the fact of death and the emotional pain that we feel when someone that is close to us, someone that we love, dies. And so we have to recognize that being a Christian does not protect us from experiencing deep sorrow. And I know this goes without being 
really needing to be said. But the deeper that we have loved, the deeper our sorrow will be when that loved one is taken from us in death. Especially a death that is unexpected. But the point is, is that we all need to understand that there is nothing unspiritual about feeling deep sorrow and grief at a time of loss. True, our, our grief is different than the way the world grieves because we don't grieve without, as one without hope, right? 1 Thessalonians 4. We have an ultimate hope in Christ. And yet, we still grieve. Isaiah 53.3 says that the Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so, it's not ungodly to grieve, And I think this is important because sometimes we can have this approach, this attitude as believers, that if we have faith and if we trust the Lord and if we uh, come to church and we sing some songs and we listen to his word, that that's going to resolve the issue of grief. That, That somehow grief is in opposition to hope. And that if we have hope in Jesus and peace in Jesus, then we won't have grief. And yet these two don't really stand in opposition to each other, but they are joined through Jesus Christ. G. Campbell Morgan was a very godly pastor and Bible teacher. And when he was 30 years old, he and his wife lost their little, their little daughter in death. Forty years later, he was preaching on Christ, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, And he made a reference to their little girl's death, who in spite of their prayers was not healed. And he said, she has been with him all of those years as we measure time here. And I have missed her every day. But his word, believe only, has been the strength of all the passing years. Six months after his daughter's death, he wrote in his diary, today I am 31 years old. Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. There have been no accidents, all under the Father's government, and all best. What a good perspective, but what a, what a hard perspective and attitude to have. He knew the sustaining grace of the Lord, but he also felt loss every day. For the rest of his life. And although he was a godly man. He was not insulated from experiencing deep sorrow over his loss. And like him. We should seek comfort in the Lord. But recognize the reality of our sorrows. And so while it is true that we will experience sorrow. We have to kind of consider where sorrow comes from. Uh, several weeks back, um, Dave, my dad, preached a message on suffering and looked at how suffering can come a lot of different ways. And specifically in the area of loss, there are different factors that can play a role in that. And there are more causes than we have time to really talk about. But out of this passage, I think that we can draw a few conclusions about the factors that can cause sorrow. One of the first ones is that sorrow can stem from disappointment when something doesn't go as we had hoped. The comment of the men who were on the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus died, he was crucified, he rose again, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And there's these two people that are there with him, and they didn't recognize yet that he was the risen Lord. Um, But... uh, It's interesting in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, it says, But we were hoping that it was he who is going to redeem Israel. Right? Can you feel the disappointment in that comment? We were hoping that it was he that was going to redeem Israel. They thought that the Messiah would come and would establish his reign over Israel, bringing times of peace and blessing as prophesied in the Old Testament. The disciples had really forsaken everything to follow Jesus in the hopes that he was the promised Messiah. But now their hopes that he was the promised Messiah were were in question. 
Contrary to their hopes, he was falsely accused. He was executed. And they were deeply disappointed. In the same way, when we have hoped and we have prayed and worked for something that we believe is God's will and it didn't happen, we experience sorrow. Maybe you've been in that position where there's been somebody in your life who is passing and and you've prayed and you've cried out to the Lord and you've asked for healing, but it didn't happen. And that person passed and there is deep sorrow and grief that comes there. There's a second place that sorrow can come from. Sorrow can stem from confusion over something in the Bible or in our circumstances. Look in verse 18. It says, so they were saying, what does it mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about, <laughs> right? Pretty, pretty upfront comment by the disciples, right? We have no idea what you're saying. The disciples were confused about Jesus and what he was telling them but they would be even more deeply confused in the next few hours as they would watch their Lord suffer the most shameful, the most painful death imaginable. And even in spite of Jesus repeatedly telling them that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, the disciples didn't fully get it. They couldn't conceive of a Messiah who did not come to establish his kingdom and his reign. They understood part of the scriptures, but not all of them. In the same way, I think it's easy for us to get confused and to not totally understand all of the Bible's teaching on something. I know sometimes we try to to, to act like we get it and we we understand it all, but the reality is is that we we don't. And, And in some maybe cases, we can't. We have preconceived ideas about how things should turn out. And when they don't go our way, we are confused and we're sorrowful. sorrowful. There's a third area that sorrow comes from. Sorrow can stem from the triumph of evil people. Look in verses 19 and 20. It says, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It's interesting in here that Jesus says that you will weep and rejoice, but the world is going to have a different response. Right? Still talking and thinking a little bit about the persecution and the opposition, right? That in this world there will be trouble. The world will rejoice at the death of Jesus. People with perverted values seem to often prevail while it is the righteous who suffer. Jesus tells the disciples that the world would rejoice over his death. The smug religious leaders congratulated one another over finally getting rid of this pesky preacher from Galilee, the person who threatened their power. In our day, we may see horrific evil in the world, and it may seem like they're winning, they're advancing, they're succeeding, that things are going well, and we feel sorrow and grief. And sometimes it's difficult to hold those two things together. But there is this reality that sorrow can come just even from looking in the world around us. And then there is a fourth area that I think sorrow can come from. Sorrow can stem from living just in a fallen creation. Because of Adam's sin, the, the whole world is subjected to futility and death. Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8 talk about that. And even though that Christ has conquered sin and death at the cross, we still live in a world in bodies that are subject to disease and death. We still have to fight the fight against the flesh, which is prone to sin, which has painful consequences. And when others sin against us, we suffer sadness and sorrow. And sometimes the pain is so deep that it takes years to work through. 
and maybe is never fully or completely removed. See, being Christians does not protect us from experiencing such sorrow and pain. But there is good news. There is hope that we have that we hold together, not in place of, but that we hold together in our grief. And that is that we worship a risen Jesus, right? And that Jesus promises to turn our sorrows into lasting joy. Look at these next set of verses in 21 through 24. It says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the hope that we have to carry with our grief. And so in these last few verses, I want us to sort of think about three questions. I want us to think about what kind of savior is Jesus that he would bring lasting joy into our sorrow. What does that mean? What, is it, what does it say about who he is? Secondly, how does he turn sorrow to joy, right? Maybe that is the million dollar question. How is it that God would take our sorrow and turn it into everlasting joy? And then lastly, and, and maybe most importantly, why? Why does he turn our sorrow into joy? And, and so let's consider these three questions. What kind of savior is Jesus? What kind of savior would step into our sorrow and our grief and bring with him through the power of the Holy Spirit a comfort that is so deep and so meaningful and so genuine that we would suffer and grieve the loss and yet find joy. Because it's not a replacement of one for the other, but it is a joy that comes in the midst of our grief. And so there's a lot of different passages that we could look at in Scripture. And so just looking at these verses here in John 16, let's consider what kind of Savior He is. Firstly, I think that we see that the Lord Jesus is a sensitive Savior. We maybe don't like that term. Maybe it makes us feel like Jesus is weak, but it's not. In fact, it is out of strength and out of the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus exercises sensitivity to you and I. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is sensitive to what you're going through? Amen. To what you feel? That God cares about how we feel. We don't base our actions of love and obedience to God based on our feelings, but he cares about how we feel. He knew that the disciples were confused about his comments. And even though he could have rightly chewed them out for being slow to understand what he had repeatedly been telling them, but instead he graciously and patiently acknowledges their confusion and assures them that after a short season of sorrow, they would soon experience his lasting joy. Even though the Lord knew the future before it happened, he didn't deal with the disciples in a cold manner. He didn't deal with them in a sort of a rote mechanical manner, right? He didn't say, hey guys, just get your stuff together here. Pick your heads up, buck up. Everything's going to be fine. Listen, I'm God. I'm sovereign. It's all going to work out, right? Get it together. He could have, but he didn't. 
Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says, Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Isn't that great? God is mindful of our mortality. He is mindful of our loss and suffering. He is sensitive to these things. And so it doesn't matter how often it's happened. It doesn't matter how long of a season of grief you've been in. It's okay because God will never grow weary of bringing comfort into your loss. He's never tired of it. He's never annoyed by it. He never has had enough of it. He allows it and he invites you to bring it to him so that he can bring everlasting joy. Jesus is a sensitive savior, but Jesus is also a suffering savior who willingly went through unimaginable sorrow on our behalf. In, in really just a few moments, Jesus would sweat great drops of blood in the garden as he agonized in prayer over the thought of bearing the weight of sin. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says that he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. On the cross, he cried out in great agony the words of Psalm 22 verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He willingly endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. On our behalf, for the joy set before him, bringing many children to glory. So, why? So, Hebrews chapter 4. So, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I praise the Lord that we have a God who is a sensitive Savior, but He is a suffering Savior. He knows what it's like to experience loss, the greatest loss, the greatest suffering. He has walked through pains that are beyond what any of us could possibly imagine as He carried the burden and the weight of sin, the sin of the world on His shoulders and into His death. There is no level of pain, there is no grief that is beyond the understanding of our God. Sometimes it's hard to interact with others about our grief because there's a lack of understanding if they haven't really experienced. And the most that they can really volunteer are simple platitudes. And sometimes those platitudes can be even more hurtful than necessary. And it's not out of a desire to, you know, hurt. It's out of a desire, good intentions, right? To come alongside and to help and to aid. But that is why we looked to Christ because he is the one that fully understands everything that we've experienced. All the deepest sorrows of life are known by God. He is a sensitive savior. He is a suffering savior. And praise the Lord, he is a risen savior. And he is a risen Savior who triumphed over sin and death. Jesus said this in chapter 16, verse 22. He says, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. and Your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. The dramatic change in the disciples from grief to lasting joy was founded on seeing the risen Savior. Everything about the Christian faith... Everything rests on the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. The apostles were transformed from fearful, defeated, confused men into bold witnesses who were willing to suffer and even die because they saw the risen Savior. And since he has been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, he is coming again to conquer and to reign. And at that moment, all of our sorrows will instantly be turned 
into eternal joy. I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to being able to see Christ. This is our Savior. The the one who is saying these things, making these promises, embedded in the promise of the Holy Spirit that is going to come. He is a good God. He's sensitive. He is suffering and he is risen. And so it's on that basis then that we can trust these promises. And so that leads us to really the second question. How does the Lord turn our sorrow into joy? How how does it happen? Well, let me give you four different ways that I think this happens. One, the Lord turns our sorrow into joy by showing us the glory of the cross. To have seen their beloved Lord beaten and bloodied hanging on the cross was probably the most unimaginable and horrific, shocking events in the lives of the disciples. I don't know if any of you have had the joy of seeing the movie The Passion of the Christ. It is a graphic depiction of the horrific crucifixion of Christ. It can be hard to watch and hard to comprehend. But think about this, if you've seen that. The disciples saw it in person, firsthand. They witnessed it in all of its horrific form. And it must have sent them into deep shock. But consider this. After beholding this horrific act of the cross, the amazing truth is that in all of their writings, they do not portray the cross in depressing, mournful tones, but rather as something glorious and triumphant. It was the center of their apostolic preaching because it was the basis upon which God would forgive our sins. Paul even wrote that he gloried or boasted in the cross in Galatians chapter 6. The significant thing here that we see in verse 20 is that Jesus doesn't say that the disciples' sorrow would be replaced by joy, but that rather he would turn their joy from from, turn their sorrow into joy. He, He uses this analogy of a woman in labor in verse 21. And of course, in that day, there really was no such thing as anesthesia in the way that we would understand it. And you would uh, hear a woman crying in anguish, sounding like she is about to die in one minute. And then a few minutes later, she would be beaming with joy over the very thing that caused her such anguish, namely her newborn baby. You know, what, a, what an illustration. We're, I'm so... Uh, thankful. Many of you guys know or have just kind of recently saw, we're, we're really thankful um, that the Lord has blessed my, my wife with a new baby that is growing in her womb. <laughs> and we're just really, really thankful. And we just really feel blessed by God. And, and here's the thing is I say this very carefully uh, because there's a lot of people who've been through fertility issues, who've struggled getting pregnant. And, and sometimes it's difficult to hear when other people finally uh, achieve maybe success or they're able to get to where they want to be in that regards. And it can feel hurtful. It can feel, uh, it can sort of bring up this element of grief for people who maybe were never able to find pregnancy come to fruition. And so that's not my intent. But I praise the Lord for this pregnancy that God has given us. And as many of you guys know, it's, it's been a long journey and it's been full of grief and loss and frankly we don't we don't know what the Lord has in store for us and we're trusting um, that that God will watch over and continue to protect And, and I believe in our particular story that there were times in this process this pregnancy process where uh, we were losing the baby and, and we reached out and, and, and the elders and others uh, started to begin to actively pray and that God I This is what I believe is that God intervened and and stopped whatever was happening and protected the life of this baby. And I know that that doesn't happen for everybody. And I know that that doesn't mean that I'm more spiritual. It doesn't mean that we prayed in a different way or harder. It just means that this was God's will at this particular time for this child. And that's what we're trusting. And so we're very excited. 
and we're looking forward to what God has. Uh, but at the same time, uh, my wife is going through it. And you ladies know she's dealing with the morning sickness and the lack of energy and tiredness and soreness and all the things that can come with pregnancy, right? And, and yet we have these conversations, right? Because we will not complain about these things. Because these things, these hardships that she's enduring are a evidence of, a proof of this blessing and this life that is growing in her. And so while her days can be really, really hard and getting through those things, like, like so many of you women have experienced, there is a joy even in the midst of that. There is a thanksgiving that comes through that process. And I think that that's what Jesus is talking about right here, even more so when he's talking about childbirth. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 that our sufferings bring us into fellowship with Christ in his suffering so that we attain to the resurrection of the dead. In Romans chapter 8 verse 18, he said that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that if we fix our eyes on Jesus and his suffering, then we can submit to God's discipline in our lives, which yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Lord turns our present sorrow into joy when we get a deeper understanding of the glory of his cross. But secondly, the Lord also turns sorrow into joy by giving us an eternal perspective. The Lord didn't answer the disciples' questions right on the spot. He didn't answer them so that they would have faced the cross the next day with a really clear understanding, right? But he did give them enough instruction that enabled them to be able to look back on this traumatic event with clarity and understanding. Sometimes God doesn't give us exactly the clarity in the moment that we desire, but always God gives us enough so that when we look back, we're able to see the grace and the goodness and the plan of God. After the resurrection, as he opened the scriptures to show them how the Messiah needed to first suffer and then enter into his glory, they got a big picture of what God is doing in history. They got an eternal perspective that enabled them to endure suffering for the sake of his kingdom. In Psalm 73, the psalmist was confused and depressed as he saw the seeming prosperity of the wicked while at the same time he was being chastened every day. And he was about to despair until he went into God's sanctuary. And then he perceived the end of the wicked and how God was the eternal portion of the godly. That eternal perspective turned his sorrow into joy. It's that perspective. God is our eternal portion in our grief. Thirdly, the Lord turns our sorrow into joy by being our mediator to the throne of grace. Look again at verses 23 and 24. It says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give you. He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be, made, that your joy may be full. Jesus repeats this promise uh, that was an answer to the disciples' prayers offered in his name. And so as we've seen, to ask Jesus in, or to ask something in Jesus' names means that we're asking that it's in line with his will, that which will further his kingdom and his glory. It is to ask that for which Jesus would want, based not on our own merit, but on the blood of Jesus' righteousness. When we ask, he answers, and our joy will be made full. Now, if we remember back, we looked at this a little bit in John chapter 14. And there's many times that we ask for something in Jesus' name, and we think that it will further his kingdom and it will glorify his name, but he doesn't answer what we've asked. And in those times, we have to trust that he will work in ways that are beyond how we think or even what we ask. He often accomplishes his purposes in a way that seems maybe backwards to us. And since we don't understand all that God is doing, and he usually doesn't try to explain it to us, 
We may go even to our graves not really knowing why he seemingly didn't answer our prayers. But when he does answer our prayers, it floods us with joy. And so we may not get the answers that we're always looking for. We may not always even get the answers. But when we pray in his will, according to his name, and we receive those answers, it brings joy into our lives. And then lastly, the Lord turns our sorrow into joy when we see him risen from the dead through the eyes of faith. Jesus said in verses 16, 17, and then again in verse 22, that the disciples would see him again and then that their hearts would rejoice and that no one would take the joy away from them. They saw the risen Lord physically, which, you know, of course, you and I can't do. But we can see him spiritually when we believe the apostolic witness. Peter wrote about the sufferings of Christians in 1 Peter 1 verse 8. He says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, here's the key, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See, it's oftentimes in suffering that we see the Lord Jesus even more clearly as the Holy Spirit opens up the riches of Christ to our souls in fresh ways. And, of course, our ultimate eternal joy will sweep all of our sorrows away forever. The instant that we see Christ return in power and in glory. And so we say amen, right? Jesus is a sensitive and suffering and risen Savior. He turns our sorrows into joy by showing us the glory of the cross, by giving us an eternal perspective, by being our mediator to the throne of grace, and by letting us see him risen from the dead through eyes of faith. And so lastly, as we conclude, I want to end with this last question. If that's how... God brings about lasting joy in the midst of our sorrow. One question that I think is important for us is why? Why does the Lord turn our sorrow to lasting joy? Let me give you just two quick thoughts on this. One, I think that he turns our our sorrow into lasting joy because it enables us to grow and to be like him through the process of suffering. It allows us to grow and to mature, right? John 15, to mature in that abiding relationship, bearing fruit. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, exhort us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Because of those trials, we will become more like our Savior. Paul says something similar to this in Romans chapter 5, where he says that he exalts us in his... He exalts, says he exalts in his tribulations, knowing that they produce perseverance, proven character, and hope. Right? And if you're like me, you might say, can't we just skip that part and just go right to joy? Wouldn't that be much better? But Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says that our Lord learned obedience through his sufferings. Now, it's not like, unlike us, right, who are disobedient, it's not like God was disobedient and had to learn how to be obedient. But it was through suffering he experienced what obedience is all about. And through our sufferings, we learn more like him. We learn to be more like him if we trust him through the process. And then secondly, he turns our sorrow into lasting joy so that we will be able to point others to his all-sufficiency. It's only when a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies that it brings forth much fruit. John chapter 12. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.4, he said that God comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort others in their afflictions with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Listen, when others are going through grief and loss, we must come alongside them and comfort them. But let's comfort them carefully. There's too many times 
that we respond to others' loss and tragedy in a way that is formulaic and manufactured so that we feel good about doing our part. I was a good Christian. I gave them this verse that God works all things together for good. Did my part. I'm sure they feel better. It doesn't work that way. We must comfort them carefully. And that's different for every person in every situation. But it means bringing the sensitivity of the Savior, the reality of the suffering of the Savior, and the reality of a risen Savior into the lives of others. I'll close with this. Many years ago, there was a Salvation Army officer who was preaching uh, in Chicago. Um, This was a story that was in the Daily Bread. Um, And a man in the crowd spoke out in front of everyone. And he said, you can talk about Christ and how he's dear to you. But if your wife were dead, as my wife is, and you had babies crying for their mother, you couldn't say what you're saying. Unbelievably, a few days later, that preacher's wife was killed in a tragic train accident. And at the funeral service, the grieving husband stood beside her casket and said, the other day I was preaching in this city and a man said that if my wife were dead and my children were crying for their mother, I couldn't say that Christ was sufficient. If that man is here, I tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart is crushed, bleeding, and broken. But there is also a song in my heart, and Christ put it there. The Savior speaks comfort to me today. The man who raised the objection was present that day, and he surrendered his life to Christ. And so that's what we want to say, is wherever you're at and whatever loss you've endured, whatever grief you bear, even in these holidays, that Christ is sufficient. And he invites us to turn into joy. And God turns our sorrow into joy in the sense that he transforms our perspective. He transforms our attitude and our view of it. But it's also a calling. Because not only does the power of the Holy Spirit do the work of turning our sorrow into joy, but it's a call on our lives that we are in the midst of our sorrow to turn into joy, that we must pursue Christ, that we must trust his promises, that we must cling to whatever thread of hope and faith that we still have yet remaining in our lives. The world's joy that comes from things that perish is temporary. Their joy will be turned into sorrow when those things perish and they face God in judgment. But when our risen Lord returns, our temporary sorrows will be turned into eternal joy. And so like many of you, I take heart while grieving, while experiencing sorrow. I take heart in knowing that my friend Mike and my friend Denise, that someday I will see them again. And that's enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. And God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your goodness in our lives. God, this morning I want to pray for those who maybe entered into this Thanksgiving and this holiday season with an extra measure of grief. Uh, Maybe it was loss that they experienced in some way, in some capacity over this last year. And there's a a heaviness that they carry with them. God, I pray that they would be able to look to you and God, see that you are a sensitive Savior. God, that you care about how they're feeling. God, that they would be able to see that you are a suffering Savior, that you know the depth and gravity of the pain of their loss. And God, that they would be able to see you as the risen Savior, 
And God, that because of your cross, that there is hope and glory even in their grief. And so God, help us to grieve well, to be uh, full of sorrow in a way that glorifies you and honors your work on the cross. And God, may we find joy in thanksgiving in walking with you through our loss and through our grief and through our sorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.